On October 13, 1994, the first commercial web browser launched. And yeah, I was one of the first people in line at Fry's in Palo Alto to get my copy of Netscape Navigator. It required that I install PPP, which stands for Point-to-Point -point Protocol, which was missing in native Windows 3.1. But once I added that, I could surf the web. Yeah, all 500 websites that were available then. One year after Netscape Navigator launched, Microsoft released Internet Explorer, launching the infamous Browser Wars. In the end, Netscape would be sold to AOL and, well, disappear. But that talent that created Netscape became Mozilla, which launched Firefox. And along the way came Apple Safari and Google Chrome. The point here is that browsers today are an essential part of our lives. You're probably using a browser to download or listen to this podcast right now. What keeps the browser secure from crashing from bad code is that certain operations are constrained, they're processed separately, and they're limited by what's known as sandboxes. But what happens when a developer makes a mistake? What happens when the security in place gets defeated? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing how professional hacker just happened to find a vulnerability in Google's Chromium, and why that's not necessarily a bad thing that he did that, and why, perhaps, hackers like this should be compensated fairly. In 2012, Google's Chrome fell for the first time at the annual Pwned Ohm competition in Vancouver's CanSec West. Google offered to pay as much as $1 million to anyone who could show vulnerabilities in its Chrome browser. And this week, a French team got $60,000 for doing just that. Compared to peers like Safari and Internet Explorer, Chrome has been a seemingly impenetrable web surfing fortress at Pwn to Own. It was a humbling experience, and it drove further enhancements in the security at Google. Chrome today is one of the strongest and most secure browsers. But that doesn't keep hackers from finding new and interesting vulnerabilities and presenting them at other conferences. So that talk was about um, a bug that I found in Google Chrome, which I used to write an exploit to escape from the sandbox. This is Tim. He's a professional pen tester, a professional hacker. He works for the security company called Theory. Theory is a security consulting uh, and contracting company primarily where we do security audits and analysis for software vendors. Um, and in between contracts, we like to do vulnerability research on uh, open source software or major high impact software targets. Most notable example I can think of would be like Windows or maybe iOS where uh, large parts of the source code are not open source. but they impact, you know, billions of users and they have vulnerabilities in them, which, you know, maybe you could argue are a little harder to find because the code is not open source, but that's still achievable through reverse engineering or, or fuzzing or other techniques. There are two terms you need to know up front. Chrome is a browser that you run on your laptop or mobile. Chromium is the free and open source project that runs underneath Chrome and other browsers. Chrome is based on the open source project Chromium by Google. 
And uh, these days, actually, a lot of things are based on Chromium. So other browsers, um, most notably, Microsoft Edge is now Chromium-based, but there's also a few others like Brave Browser and a few other smaller projects that are all based on the same code. So think of Chromium as a stripped-down open-source version of a browser. And then Chrome and Edge add extra features on top of that. Because it's open source, developers can change or add code. And apparently that's what happened here. So the bug was actually implemented by Microsoft developers where they were adding a feature for Microsoft Edge that the feature then got ported back into um, the open source Chromium implementation. So it affected everything that derived from Chromium, including Google Chrome and Edge and the other browsers. So is the problem usually in the implementation or within the open source project itself? I would say it's almost always in the open source code. Um, it's, there's a very small amount of code, which is closed source and private to the, the different vendors. And uh, though I haven't looked in great detail into the edge specific code, partly because it's not open source, I think. It's closed source and you can only analyze it by reverse engineering the compiled code. But also, there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot there that isn't just based on Chromium, the open source code. What's true across all browsers is the need to break processes into smaller, more independent units, sandboxes. These provide stability. So if something crashes within a sandbox, it won't affect the larger system. Sandbox in Chrome is a uh, security boundary or mechanism uh, that exists to prevent even remote code execution exploits, so hacks that, that get code running on the target computer from basically accessing the interesting parts of the system. The sandbox creates limits on what um, a certain process running on a computer can access, like which parts of the system it can um, talk to. And so the goal of the Chrome Sandbox is to limit the damage that a remote attacker could do even if they get um, code execution on the target computer. And so um, there's a very specific attack surface that you have from within the sandbox where there's only a few things you can interact with. And in order to escape the sandbox, typically you have to use this very limited attack surface to find or to find a bug in one endpoint of that. and. Um, get code execution outside of the sandbox. And so that's what I was able to do with that bug. So a web browser today actually consists of different sandboxes. That makes sense. In order for all this to work, in order for a web page to render properly, these separate processes all have to communicate with each other. And it's there in the communications framework that stitches these processes together that Tim found his vulnerability. Mojo is an IPC platform, where IPC means inter-process communication. So um, basically, in Chrome, there's the sandbox process, which is running most of the web engine rendering stuff. And then there's the um, browser process, which is kind of the root main process in Chrome um, that coordinates all of these other processes. And they have to talk to each other using IPC. And Mojo is the platform that was built for Chromium, and it's now used in some other Google projects as well um, for doing IPC. And um, so the bug that I found was uh, related and very tied to how Mojo is used in Chrome. It was a specific bug class where a certain object uh, that exists outside of the sandbox gets used after it's freed. And the mechanism by which this happens involves like 
the Mojo IPC platform, basically. Use after free is a surprisingly common vulnerability. It's CWE 416, in case you're wondering. Use after free refers to the attempt to access memory after it has been freed. This attempt can cause a program to crash or intentionally result in execution of arbitrary code. So it's kind of important. There's also a lucky break. In vulnerability research, it doesn't always work this way. Sometimes you put in the work and come up empty. No vulnerabilities. So how does one go about doing that? I mean, being there at the right place and the right time. This was a newly added feature in Edge, and yet there was Tim waiting. So I had been looking at Chromium for a while, actually. Um, basically, like whenever I have free time at work, I'm looking for bugs in, in open source projects or just major software. And Chrome has been my target lately. Um, and so I stumbled upon this this basically bug class, like this type of vulnerability um, by reading Chrome bug reports. What I mean by a bug class is just a common pattern of code, which um, has a vulnerability in it, which is repeated in several places across the code base. And I decided to see if there were other instances of it. And sure enough, there was one that was recently introduced with this new feature. And it just happened to be at the right time. Other than this particular vulnerability, sometimes you stick with what you know works. Tim has since found a few more vulnerabilities. Recently, I reported um, like four or five different instances of this one bug class that I found in um, the Chrome renderer. So this isn't a sandbox escape, but this is a bug that would get code execution on the in the sandbox process initially. Um, and I found like four or five instances of the same similar bug class there that I reported recently. I don't know if the reports are public yet. Hackers don't exist in a vacuum. There are others, sometimes looking in the same place at the same time. And when two or more hackers find a vulnerability, it's called a collision. Uh, yeah, actually, with, with the bugs I was talking about recently, a few of the ones that I reported were marked a duplicate right away because someone else had previously reported them. So it's interesting. It seemed like a few people were kind of looking into this bug class at the same time. And we were just using slightly different methods to find them, I guess. And we ended up with slightly different sets of bugs that we reported. How does one go about finding bugs like this? So I've used pretty much every um, technique of, available for finding bugs that I'm aware of um, from just, uh, you know, source code auditing. Um, so just reading code of different components and looking for bug patterns that I'm aware of or trying to think of new bug patterns. Um, and then if I find a particular area of Chrome that um, looks like it's right for a certain other technique, like buzzing or static analysis of some sort, I will try to implement those techniques on that component of Chrome. And how does one train? How does one begin the process of becoming a professional hacker? I acquired most of my skills initially from capture the flag competitions and um, especially lately the capture the flags have becoming have been becoming more sort of real world um, so a lot of the challenges and ctfs now uh, are based on real world vulnerabilities or are just actually real world vulnerabilities um, that are like now one day so um, if you want to get practice in writing exploits on real-world software, 
CTFs are actually a very great way to learn that right now. You'd think by doing CTFs, that's where he acquired his tools. That's not necessarily the case. Actually, in CTFs, it's more common that the bug is more or less obvious, at least in these challenges that are based on real world um, vulnerabilities. And it's more a test and like an assessment of your ability to write the exploit for the bug. Um, so with respect to like learning tools for bug hunting, I wouldn't say that CTFs are the best way to, to learn that, but there's certainly a good way to learn about different types of vulnerabilities that exist and um, get practice with exploiting them. So what Leap Tools does Tim use? So I, I just run Linux on my personal machine, um, just Ubuntu or Debian or something. Um, but for, for bug hunting tools, uh, I mean, the most common one that people use is AFL, which is a, a fuzzing engine, um, which is relatively easy to get up and running with pretty much any code, whether it's open source or you just have a compiled binary. Um, however, my favorite fuzzing engine is actually libfuzzer, which is um, developed by Google as part of the LLVM project. And uh, there you have to actually write some code, which kind of you, you write a little harness for the fuzzer to attach and provide input into the code you're interested in fuzzing. Um, but that would be my favorite fuzzing engine. So with some tools and some experience, how does one go about doing this vulnerability research? Um, that's a great question. Um, I would say that there's a website called HackerOne, which basically organizes um, bug bounties for a bunch of different software vendors. And um, they have a, a very wide selection of targets there. Um, and so a lot of people I know, myself included, actually got started in bug bounties by looking for bugs in um, some HackerOne uh, related vendors. Um, so e even things like looking for bugs in like the Python interpreter, um, or, you know, uh, some web servers of some sort. Um, there's there's plenty of bounties to get started on. Um, I I wouldn't say browsers are my favorite necessarily, but they're the most high impact currently, um, and they have the highest bounty rewards. Um, probably my most interesting uh, targets would be like operating system kernels. Um, yeah, I guess it, it. I mean, it varies depending on, you know, uh, how difficult things are at the given time, basically. Um, but at the current time, um, browsers, in, in particular, Sandbox Escape, tends to be the bottleneck. Um, if an attacker was trying to actually write a full chain exploit, and so the bounties kind of correspond to that relative difficulty. And currently, browsers are the bottleneck in most cases. An exploit chain is an attack that involves multiple exploits or attacks. Hackers will usually not use just one method, but multiples, chaining them together. Browsers with their sandboxes create a problem. Unless, as Tim found, you have a way to escape the sandbox. Typically with, with, um, with bug bounties, they prefer that you report um, right away, if you can. Um, so if the bug is like currently... Uh, affecting users, um, it's probably best to report right away. And typically the, the bounty vendors, I know this is true for Google in particular, will give you some time to finish writing an exploit for it. 
if they want to offer you extra for proving that it's exploitable. So um, if you're reporting a bug like this to at least Google Chrome, but probably other vendors, uh, if you report the bug immediately and then take some time to write the exploit, you can still get the full reward for the exploit. The alternative to bug bounty programs are the dark markets, the dark web where exploits have a price as well. I don't know how much this is accurate, um, but I would say that there are sort of like private market prices for these different vulnerabilities where if you if you aren't responsibly disclosing them and rather you're selling them for profit to some sort of uh, exploit broker or something, there there are publicly known prices for the different um, types of vulnerabilities and in the target software that they're in. So you can kind of get a sense of how difficult or um, important different bug classes are based on those private market prices. Um, and typically, Google Chrome and Android bugs are the highest value currently. Um, and I would say that that indicates that those are kind of the hardest targets at the moment. Um, but it, it varies with time. Uh, sometimes iOS um, full chains are higher value. Paying for vulnerabilities creates some interesting possibilities. For example, there's this idea that some hackers may be millionaires today because of what they're finding and reporting. Um, yeah, I've certainly heard of examples of, of people that find like a nice um, basically a nice methodology for finding similar types of bugs in all kinds of different products. And like, for instance, on HackerOne, there are public scoreboards of how much money certain users have made. And there are certainly people who have made in the millions of dollars from, from bug bounties. But I would also say that in my personal opinion, um, bug bounties aren't compensating well enough to make bounty hunting like a stable career for a lot of people, which I think it should be able to do. Um, I, I think the security of software would benefit greatly if um, bounties were a little higher and more people could pursue this as a full-time career. Fortunately, Tim works at a company that builds in time for this stuff. Um, it's, it's technically part of my job at Theory. Um, basically, when we have time in between contracts, we're doing vulnerability research on major software and um, collecting bug bounties and stuff. That said, not everything is perfect. Not yet. That's right. Yeah. I, I think having a bounty program at all is, is great and certainly a step in the right direction um, because, I mean, it is just, it has a proven track record of improving the security of the software. Um, but I would argue that it, it could be improved much more if the incentives were a little higher for people to devote the time to acquire the the general bug hunting skills, but also the the main specific skills for that that specific software, um, which takes a lot of time on its own. And uh, if it was rewarded a little better, um, you could have more experts on that specific software that are finding vulnerabilities and reporting them. Well, I mean, I definitely have fun doing it, so I would likely be doing it either way. But So, yeah, I would say the bounties are just a nice addition. The work that Tim and others are doing is significant, whether it be looking specifically at browser sandboxes or more generally at the operating systems we use daily. Identifying vulnerabilities early so that they can be fixed, that's valuable. 
So should ethical hackers be paid for responsibly reporting vulnerabilities? I think so. And I think bug bounty programs can be a step toward a sustainable software security model. But there needs to be much more, such as a sustainable way for vendors to take in and remediate all those new bugs. There needs to be a certain security maturity among the vendors, for example. And that, perhaps, is a discussion for another episode of The Hacker Mine. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mine and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mine, I'm Robert Mosey.